IB Talk, the global insurance industry podcast presented by Insurance Business. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the insurance industry's global podcast, IB Talk. I'm Paul Lucas, the managing editor of Insurance Business, and isn't it amazing how times have changed this year? Uh, turn the clocks back 12 months when the coronavirus pandemic was unheard of, and the industry was focused on a host of risks, ranging from climate change to cyber attacks. Uh, now, of course, while the focus may be pandemic, pandemic, pandemic in the public consciousness, it's clear those other looming risks cannot be forgotten. And one that should always be at the forefront of our minds is the threat of terrorism. Uh, Whether it was the horrors that impacted the US on 9-11, the horrendous Christchurch New Zealand Facebook gunman, or the only two frequent attacks on major European cities like London, Madrid, Paris and Brussels in recent years, uh, the lives lost to terrorism may have been dwarfed by the pandemic, but the horrors still loom large. Uh, So where does the landscape sit now? What threats should we be conscious of? And what can insurers and brokers alike do to address them? Uh, To talk about these topics today, I'm fortunate enough to welcome perhaps the preeminent voice on terrorism insurance around the world, uh, the CEO of Pool Re, Julian Anoisi. Uh, Julian, welcome to IB Talk. Hi, Paul, and thank you very much for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Um, So, Julian, before we get into the terrorism climate, um, let's talk a little bit about your career, because you actually started out as a solicitor, didn't you? Um, Tell us how you got into law and then subsequently insurance. Did you you follow the path of so many and fall into the industry? (laughs) Uh, I guess I I did, actually. As you say, I I qualified uh, as a solicitor. I went to uh, Brussels to work in... in, in, uh, uh, in international law and competition law over there. And while I was there, I used to sit on the uh, International Chamber of Commerce uh, Financial Services Subcommittee, and that was predominantly bankers and insurers. And it was there uh, that I met the general counsel of Chubb uh, at the time, and um, and she invited me to, to join Chubb, uh, which is how I came into insurance. I wasn't looking for a job in insurance, but that's how I ended up there. And did you not sort of have dreams of, uh, I don't know, a, a, an even greater law career? <laughs> um, to be honest, I think I had always felt that what I really wanted to do was to uh, advise businesses direct. And by that, I mean being within the business as opposed to sort of, you know, sitting outside in private practice in, in a law firm where ultimately at the end of the day, uh, you, you, you sort of put the pen down and, and, and you're no longer really involved you haven't got skin in the game as it were whereas being an in-house counsel uh, you're very much part of that business and the decisions that you make are integral to uh, the outcome and and like you said you you went uh, first of all in, in the insurance industry uh, in, with with chubb uh, you were there for i think around five years uh, then you were with aig for for two years and and then you became actually ceo at uh, cna insurance um how did it feel to be offered effectively the, the top job at an organization? And, and what sort of challenges did you face moving into a role like that? Well, it was, it was, it was really interesting, actually, because I, was in, I, was, I then moved, as you said, to, to AIG as the in-house counsel for AIG in Paris in the European division at the time. Um, and CNA, this is back in 2002, was undergoing quite a lot of challenges. In fact, I think had it not been a sort of almost privately owned company, uh, it would have gone uh, insolvent. Uh, I don't think there's any question about that. Um, 
And so at that time, the, 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 the executives of CNA and the States were looking for somebody to come in uh, and probably shut down the European operation. And many other uh, American companies shut down their European operations at that time. Um, and I kind of saw the opportunity. They were obviously hiring me because I was a lawyer and understood all of those machinations. But I saw an opportunity. And I said to them, look, if we could turn this around, would you be interested? And so um, originally they gave me the role to um, run the French office, then the whole of continental Europe. Um, and so eventually I became head of continental Europe. Uh, and it was after having turned those businesses around. Uh, that I was offered the role as chief executive of, uh, of uh, CNA across uh, UK, Ireland and Europe. So how did you go about it then? What was the, the sort of secret to, to being able to turn the business around? Well, I think uh, it seems odd to say it at the time where Brexit means we could well lose all of this. But at that time, I think one of the areas of expertise I'd mentioned sitting on that uh, American Chamber of Commerce Financial Services subcommittee I had a, quite an expertise in um, freedom of services, and, and one of the things that we chose to do at CNA was to sort of get rid of the bricks and mortar and transition to being a true specialty insurer operating across um, all of the member states. I think at that time, I forget exactly when it was 17 member states, obviously grew to uh, 28 over time. Um, but we were operating across all of those countries in specialty lines. Uh, so we weren't offering standard PNC, but we were doing it on a really low cost creative model uh, by not having the bricks and mortars and having specialist underwriters that were operating across all of those countries. And it turned out to, um, to work really well. I mean, I've got to be honest, 2002 was a good time to be doing it. The market was rising, as you'll remember. Um, and the, the model worked extremely well. And effectively, when I became chief executive of CNA, uh, I kind of split the business into three different parts, uh, London and Lloyd's, the UK regional business, and the uh, continental business. And each of those was very different. London, obviously, lower expense ratio, but different kind of loss ratio. Regional and European, obviously, higher expense ratios, but uh, tended to be a more stable uh, in terms of the loss ratios. And so we ran that CNA uh, UK and Europe as um, three different divisions and it turned out to work very well. This wasn't, of course, your, your last CEO job in the industry by any means, Julian. Um, you eventually became CEO at Argo Group International, uh, then at ProSite Specialty, um, and then eventually into the role that you've held for the last, I think, seven or, seven or so years, uh, which is to be the CEO of Pool Reinsurance. Um, Talk us through those transitions and then what led you to Pool Re. Sure. Um, I mean, obviously, very different uh, role from Pool Re to all of the others in many respects. But um, I suppose the CNA experience, first in continental Europe and then in the UK, would have probably at that time been classified as what you would call turnaround type roles. Argo, literally hot off the heels of having acquired heritage. Um, was in many respects the sort of turnaround of that business as well, which had been bought for quite a high premium and, and needed uh, some, some turnaround. Um, and ProSite, very similarly, you know, uh, again, a, a sort of private equity backed entity, a Goldman Sachs TPG entity, which had acquired an entity, merged it with uh, an existing business in the States called ProSite. And again, it was very much a turnaround type 
situation. Um, and those have with them their own challenges. In terms of uh, Pool Re, I think by that point, the, what I always describe with Pool Re was the sort of merging of the two careers in many respects, insurance and reinsurance, along with you know, law and government relations. Much of what I'd done in Brussels was very much government relations in that situation, the EC, EEC, or EC as it was at EU now. Um, and of course, Paul Ree is a management of stakeholders in many respects, the insurance industry, the reinsurance industry and capital markets, and of course, uh, the government and all the different government departments. And so I have to say, I think it's been one of the most fascinating times. And when you said seven years, it sort of makes you realize how time has flown uh, through that period, because we, we've had very uh, little time where we've sat still. It's been a constant journey um, in terms of all of the things, you know, all of those stakeholder managements, but also the, the threat, uh, the threat actors, the threat vectors, and of course now uh, in a situation where systemic risk is, is very evident as to what the effects of that can be. So just explain, uh, particularly perhaps for our, for our international listeners who, who might be unfamiliar with the, the Poolry concept, uh, can you explain how it was formed and, and what the intention behind it is? Sure. Poolry, you mentioned 9-11 in your introduction. Um, several years before that, the UK had had, really since the mid-80s, um, its own domestic terrorist threat, dissident republicanism, with the IRI, the Irish Republican Army, and many countries around Europe had similar things, like the Red Brigade in Italy or ETA in Spain. Um, in the UK, the, the Irish Republican movement came on shore and really effectively understood the power of waging war against the economy. And so what they were doing was essentially blowing up buildings, but making sure that all the people inside those buildings had got out before they did that. And of course, that very much was designed to bring the British government to the negotiating table, which of course it did, because in 1998, you had um, the Good Friday Agreement. But five years prior to that, the insurance industry, um, faced with the fact that the reinsurance industry withdrew all of its capacity for terrorism, the insurance industry was forced to do likewise. And the government was forced to recognize that without some kind of public-private partnership, uh, businesses would no longer be able to access bank loans, construction companies would no longer be able to build businesses. And so the government provided a guarantee to the insurance industry that should it ever run out of money to pay terrorism claims, the government would stand behind it as insurer of last resort with a guarantee to the entity known as Poolry um, that would be obviously repaid over time from future premiums, but that it meant that the insurance industry could continue to provide terrorism insurance knowing that it was safe from essentially insolvency. And of course, relating this back to the, the global pandemic that we're all experiencing right now, um, there have been calls, haven't there, for something similar in that regard, a, a pandemic re, so to speak. Uh, how do you feel about that concept? Well, I think it's, it's, a, it, it's a fascinating and multifaceted answer that I could give you because um, the reality is that a pandemic is an event that would be too large for the global insurance and reinsurance industry to be able to handle. There just simply isn't enough capacity or capital in the industry to be able to provide meaningful cover to uh, or for uh, that kind of loss. Um, that being said, systemic risk, as opposed to simple catastrophe risk, 
is in many respects the future of the kind of peril scenario that we're going to be faced with in the future. So if whether it is pandemic, whether it is a systemic cyber outage, whether it is a CBRM terrorism event, whether it is uh, the effects of climate change, we as an industry have to find ways of dealing with those perils, because if we don't offer that kind of cover to our customers, we are going to effectively become irrelevant. Um, and so public-private partnership, where the government accepting that, again, it is the insurer of last resort, but that it could utilize the benefits and the strengths of the insurance industry um, in a public-private partnership to share the risk, I think, is a model that we should pay more attention to. And so, um, in my opinion, that means that the insurance industry should be investing more in the modeling of these kind of risks, in how you mitigate against these risks, how you manage these risks, and of course, how you finance these risks, but should be doing so in conjunction with the government so that the industry, through a pooling mechanism, uses its economies of scale to provide that kind of information and data. It allows the industry to price the risk. It allows the industry to determine how much of the risk it wants to retain. But it also means that the government has to step up and say, well, in return for the guarantee that we will give you, um, we will also accept our responsibility as insurer of last resort. And you find an optimal sharing of the risk between the two parties. Yeah, no, I think it's a, a fascinating concept and one that we're going to hear a lot more debate about um, over the, the, the months and, and maybe years to come. But uh, Julian, let's talk about terrorism and how would you assess the current landscape? Because while it's obviously a good thing that there appear to be fewer terrorism, excuse me, fewer terrorism incidents making mainstream news of late, um, it's also slightly worrying, isn't it, that we might be sort of taking our eye off the ball and, and putting all our eggs into the pandemic basket? Yeah, I think I think there's no no question about that. I always say memories are short, and um, uh, of course, uh, you know, it's not that long ago that we had terrorist events here. 2017, there were five, um, and last year there was an additional one as well. So terrorism is ever present. As I said a moment ago, the threat, of course, has changed. I mean, the threat actors have changed. We talked a lot about Irish republicanism. We're now into that sort of religious-driven uh, terrorism, uh, which is manifested in first in Al-Qaeda, which looked very much at the spectacular, to now Daesh, which are much more low sophistication but high impact events. And of course, you've got other things emerging in terms of you know, far-right extremism. Where does climate activism sit in all of this? Where does something like Black Lives Matter sit in all of this? And so you've got the threat actor landscape, which is very different. But you've also got the vector landscape, which is very different because much of what was happening in the in the 80s was, was those, those explosions that I talk about aimed very much at property um, and which, of course, grabbed headlines, 9-11, obviously property and people headlines, which, you know, people can still picture it in their minds, 9-11. It's one of those seminal events in all of our lives to where you see now where you will have the beheading of somebody on the street and, and just a few uh, days ago, um, uh, Patty in France, who was visibly beheaded on the streets of England. You'll remember Lee Rigby, 2013 in the UK, same thing happened. Very little property damage, very little even business interruption, but wall-to-wall -wall social media coverage that keeps these things alive in the mind for a very, very long time. 
Um, and then, of course, uh, what you saw in 2015 in France and 17 in the UK, the fact that there is no property damage, but you have huge business interruption where police cordons are thrown around areas and they're kept in place for days and sometimes weeks and businesses are unable to trade uh, and have huge loss of earnings as a result. And so that then leads into whether or not you could equally have the spectacular, as I referred to earlier, CBRN, chemical weapons, as you saw in, in Tokyo in 2004, but also, um, you know, is it possible to take a pathogen and turn something like the current pandemic into something that would almost be weaponized, God forbid? What about uh, radiological, as you saw in Salisbury, albeit not a terrorism event? Um, and of course, the ultimate being some form of nuclear event. So how do you strap something to an explosive and create something that would be uh, existential in many respects? These are the kinds of things that are out there. Um, but as you say, uh, you know, I don't think, I'm sure the security forces haven't taken their eye off the ball, um, but we certainly are um, preoccupied with a different form of threat at the moment. Yeah, and, and, and what sort of direct impact, if any, would you say that the, the pandemic has had on, on that threat threat landscape? Because, um, you know, I, I mentioned that there doesn't appear to have been as many sort of major city attacks, um, perhaps over the last 12 months as there had been previously. Um, is that as simple as a case of, well, no one's going to drive a, a van through a, a busy city street because those city streets just aren't as busy anymore with lockdown. Uh, is, is, has there been any sort of direct impact like that? Well, I'm not sure I'm probably the best person to, to, to comment because I think that's more a question of the security services. But the point you make is valid that, uh, you know, there aren't very many crowded streets for you to drive a, a van down. But on the other hand, you know, equally, uh, in the same way as we're all locked down, um, I suppose so are terrorists. It's harder to travel um, and your uh, target environment is certainly less populated uh, than it has been because everybody is sitting at home. But um, I, I don't think, or I think we would be wrong to assume, therefore, that this threat is one that has gone away. I don't think that is true at all. And I suspect that 2021... Um, you may see that sort of pent up, uh, you know, pent up uh, fury that may be unleashed in a way that we weren't suspecting. So, if you were to, I, I guess, pinpoint for us some some new or, or emerging risks in this area, I, I know you talked a little bit earlier about the, some of the CBRN threats. That's chemical, biological, radiological, and, and nuclear. Um, do you think there's, you know, there are some particular risks that you would want to highlight that insurers need to be aware of? Um, can you elaborate on those for us? Yeah, I mean, look, I think in terms of you know, technology and, and how technology has advanced, um, we haven't yet seen a major terrorist uh, attack using, let's say, the cyber trigger. And when I talk about that, I don't mean... Um, stealing money from bank accounts or cyber extortion or ransomware. I'm talking about physical damage, which is uh, unleashed uh, via a computer, let's say, interacting with uh, a defense system or a turbine or, or an explosive, um, causing an explosion in that way. Um, Technology has also advanced hugely in terms of things like drones and the payload that a drone is able to carry. And I think in many respects, 2020 has, as I said earlier, been sort of almost, you know, it's a lost year in a sense, because 
um, you know, what would you do to knock the pandemic off the front pages is, is not uh, an easy thing to do. But technological advances in those two areas, I think, are definitely uh, ones where you need to keep an eye on, as well as uh, use of, you know, a biological pathogen in the future. I think when you've now seen the kind of disruption this can cause and the economic damage it's caused, let alone the deaths it's caused, um, you know, it's an extraordinary thing to wonder whether or not somebody might weaponize something like that in the future. Well, let's, let's focus in on, on, on those risks um, a, a little bit more. And let's start with the cyber element, if you want. Um, what can be done to, to mitigate against those sort of risks? Because, I mean, we see so many different forms of cyber attacks, breaches, from whether it's uh, ransomware and so on. Um, but I guess with cyber terrorism, we're, we're talking about something on a, on a much bigger scale here. Yes, I mean, potentially, um, you know, I think I think in terms of mitigation, um, you know, if you go on holiday, um, chances are you'll turn up in your hotel room and there'll be a war, a thick ward or something that will tell you what the do's and don'ts are. And, you know, the, 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 the actual room will have been uh, inspected by health and safety experts and, and uh, you know, all sorts of measures will have been implemented. That isn't the case when it comes to terrorism. And so I think, you know, government accredited protective security is something that we as an industry should engage much more with. And that's not only design and build, but I mean, in terms of just how we build buildings, um, where we put concrete bollards, how we design our air conditioning units, so that we're actually um, in building uh, terrorism threat mitigation into uh, the, the way we actually uh, operate on a day-to-day -day basis, which, by the way, has a broader use than just terrorism. If it mitigates against a terrorist threat, it's likely to mitigate against criminal threats as well. Um, in terms of cyber, I think it's you know, I mean, I'm, I'm you know, I'm, again, I'm not the expert in terms of how uh, the, the precise statistics are, but I think if, if you look at um, uh, the, the sort of published. Uh, government protective security things that are out there on the, on the basic end for the individual and the small business, 10 steps to cyber essentials, and then the more sophisticated ISO type uh, guidelines, you will see that there's an awful lot of protective security advice out there. But I think what we as an industry have got to do is incentivize the take up of that protective security through premium reduction or doing what we as an industry historically did very well, which is in understanding the risk, offering reduction for mitigation of the risk. Um, and I'm not sure that we're yet there with cyber or even with CBRM, and that what we need to be doing as an industry is using our economies of scale to carry out that research, to analyze and mine the data so that we have a better understanding and can give better advice to our customers as to what they can do to protect themselves. Yeah, I think on the, the subject of mitigation, it, it kind of goes back to also something, uh, an issue that brokers have in general. Um, it's not just getting people to, to mitigate against these risks, but getting people to actually take out terrorism insurance policies in the first place. It's a, it's always been a hard sell, hasn't it? It's got it's that uh, it won't happen to me sort of mentality that people have. If they're not located in the centre of London or New York, uh, for example, they think, well, this isn't going to happen to me. I'm not going to be affected. Um, how can brokers overcome that mindset? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, you make a very good point. And of course, you know, 
the good residents of, of Salisbury or of Nice, um, you know, would, would probably um, say that they thought it would never happen to them either. And I think part of the problem is that often the individual that is impacted by a terrorist event isn't necessarily the one that was the target of the terrorist event. In other words, um, you know, if you are a small business operating in, you know, Manchester, uh, by way of example, um, you know, you probably were not the target of the event uh, that happened two years ago. But if you were a small business operating within the vicinity of that, you were and found yourself shut down because of police cordons. Um, and it goes even further in the event of an, of an explosion, for example, because, of course, if you think again of Manchester in 1996, um, you know, all of the financial services businesses were able to just simply relocate and start up somewhere else with a computer. If you were running a small business in the, in the Arndale Centre, you were not able to do that. And so you may not be the target, but you could be caught up in uh, the event itself. And I think that's something we need to make uh, people better aware of. Other things that I think we need to do, I think we, you know, and this is incumbent on me as well as uh, brokers, is to make it easier to sell the product. We need to make sure that we make the product more uh, as affordable as possible, that we are giving advice with the product, uh, to your earlier point about how to mitigate the risk. Um, and that we're giving awareness as well, that we're making people more aware. And that's some of the investment that we've done with the Metropolitan Police uh, to provide an information sharing platform so that people know not only what the risk is, but if it were to happen to them, how they can get back on their feet. So I think in this particular area of insurance, we have a duty to go beyond the simply selling of the product, but to provide a lot more advice and um, uh, benefits around the product than perhaps we might have to in other areas of insurance. Yeah, I, I think that's great advice. And, and Julian, just before we wrap things up, because we are running short on time, uh, I know that you're um, a keen traveller and uh, particularly keen on, on skiing. Um, have you been impacted by the pandemic this year? Has it stopped you from getting out to the resorts you would normally have gone to? Uh, well, it's a bit of a first world problem, isn't it, really? Um, <laughs> um, I guess, uh, yeah, I mean, you're, you're right. Yeah, I mean, my, my passion, in a sense, is uh, quite apart from what I do, which I am extremely passionate about, is to, um, you know, to the, the sort of best possible way to have a family holiday, I think, is when you can sort of, especially with my children who are all now, now um, uh, you know, young adult children, the only way you can get them on holiday is to, is to A, pay for them and B, take them somewhere uh, where they're kind of locked away, if you like, uh, and skiing I found to be the best way of doing that. And um, uh, it is true that last year, um, yeah, there was, there was not a lot and I suspect there won't be much this year. So I shall have to turn to my second passion, which is um, uh, uh, film and theatre uh, and, uh, and catch up on some of the stuff I haven't been able to watch for a while. Which, uh, which sort of locations have you, have you been to uh, around the world skiing? Uh, oh, I suspect not as, as many as, 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 uh, as, as others, but I, I tend to, uh, unfashionable I know, I tend to like France um, uh, and, and tend to try and go somewhere where I can combine my passion for skiing with my passion for uh, good food. Uh, and so um, a lot of the areas around Bourg Saint-Maurice, little resort called Saint-Foy-Talentaise is somewhere I've been quite a lot, um, but also uh, Austria and Italy, 
um, and uh, Switzerland, but I have a real desire to go uh, to the States or Canada where I hear that the, uh, the snow is just a very different type of snow. So hopefully one day I'll get out there. That should be top of your list when uh, some normality resumes. <laughs> when? <laughs> <laughs> well, Julian, if, if anybody wants to, to reach out to you on, on the back of this podcast, uh, maybe gain some more insights on, on the terrorism landscape, um, how can they get in touch with you? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think I'd be always keen to do that. And, um, you know, we, we interact a lot with people, whether it's academics, whether it's you know, governmental officials, whether it's other insurers or reinsurers, capital markets. Um, and we, we put on all the conferences. Uh, me personally, very happy to take uh, contact from people either via the Pool Reed website or, in fact, direct to me uh, at jae at poolreed.co.uk. Super stuff. Um, Julian, thank you very, very much for your time today. Um, ladies and gentlemen, I'm Paul Lucas. This is IB Talk, and we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of IB Talk. Follow us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts for the latest episodes.